Well, good afternoon and welcome to Power for the People here on Solar Power, WERU FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in, Bang- in Bangor, and everywhere in our solar system at WERU.org. I'm your host, Steve Call. As regular listeners know, uh, Power for the People regularly covers energy policies, technology, homeowner solutions uh, that relate very much to your <clears throat> excuse me, future energy choices. And that's where we're going today in the big picture with a discussion about the future of the grid. So my guest today is Evan Perkins, who is a vice president at Competitive Energy Services in Portland. And by way of introduction, I just want to say that the the founding CEO of of, uh, Competitive Energy Services was uh, Rich Silkman. Um, And uh, I invited Rich to be on this program. Uh, Actually, he was on the program several years ago when we talked about a grid-related project in Booth Bay Harbor. Uh, where they used efficiency to eliminate the need to uh, to Im- to upgrade the grid. And I really appreciated that. So I invited Rich to be on this program again, and he instead steered me to Evan, who he said was going to know all the answers that, that he didn't necessarily even know. Uh, and so uh, welcome to Power for the People, Evan. You've been vetted by Rich Silkman, who, in my opinion, is one of the smartest people in the state of Maine. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. So you joined CES in uh, 2016 and was promoted to vice president uh, in 2022 last year. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, how you came to be at CES, uh, and what your role is there. Great. So uh, happy to be born and raised in Maine. Uh, I actually grew up in Westbrook. Uh, I'd left the state uh, after high school to go to college and sort of live elsewhere for a little bit. Uh, But I moved back in 2010, uh, sorry, 2012. Um, and I've been working sort of in the energy industry here ever since. Uh, I started out working uh, with Tilson Technology. They're a Portland-based firm that does mostly communications work, but they helped CMP build out their smart metering and smart grid network in the early 2010s when CMP got a lot of federal money and support to do that. Uh, and then I went and worked for CMP's parent company for a couple of years. Uh, so before Avon Grid, who owns CMP, along with a couple other electric utilities in the Northeast. They were known as Eberdrill USA. I worked with them for a couple of years, helping them manage their sort of smart grid programs and planning department. Uh, So I met Rich uh, in 2015, 2016, actually on the Booth Bay project. I was working on CMP's side, helping sort of coordinate some of the operations and review of that project and happy to talk about that project to whatever extent you'd like. Uh, But I came across Rich and I had the same feeling. I said, this is the smartest guy in energy I have ever met, and I need to go work from him and learn from him. So I've been really lucky over the last seven years uh, to do so and happy to be here with CES today. Fantastic. So well, tell us a little bit more about uh, what Competitive Energy Services uh, does specifically uh, and uh, what services you can offer and who your customers are. We have been around just over 20 years. We just celebrated our uh, 20th anniversary two years ago. CES, uh, we work with large energy users across Maine and the country. Uh, Think about us working sort of on an end user side of the table, figuring out how to help purchase their energy, uh, both in the near term. How do you get the great electricity supply you need? How do you get uh, the gas or liquid fuels you need? But also uh, a lot of the time I focus on here is helping our customers think longer term about how they're sourcing energy, but also planning their energy systems for either a campus, uh, a facility, 
And sometimes it's broader than that. We work with a number of cities, state agencies. So basically, how do you set a long-term strategy for building an energy system that aligns with the state's policies, but also aligns with your own financial operational objectives? And when I say end user, you know, we're working with anybody sort of across the non-residential spectrum. We work with manufacturers. We work with local cities and towns. We work with the University of Maine system, the state of Maine across their sort of public uh, facilities portfolio. So anybody who's using a decent amount of energy, we're here as a resource to help them sort of navigate energy markets, policy, long-term strategy. That's uh... That's fantastic. I mean, I was aware generically about what CES does from from talking to Rich in the past, but uh, it sounds like you're absolutely the perfect person to have on the program. And also, uh, it's important for it seems to me for a number of entities out there to reach out to you guys uh, for for planning purposes. So that's uh, that's great. And to what extent? I mean, when you say you're working for the state of Maine, that suggests that you couldn't. You're probably working with this, the governor's energy office. And to what extent? Uh, do you are you mostly in the financial cost savings world, and to what extent are you in the climate change world, which obviously are very related? But you know, how often does climate change pass the pass your lips, for example? It, all the time. I mean, they sort of become one and the same. You know, again, we we help. Um, let's take the state of Maine as an example. We've helped them look at how they're powering and fueling uh, their buildings today. They have sort of day to day needs of just meeting their energy needs with their current systems. We've also done a bunch of work with the state looking at sort of how they're building out on-site energy infrastructure moving forward. Uh, things like on-site solar, things like electrification and heat pumps. We're here as a resource to help on both of those fronts. Uh, but at the end of the day, we really help the people who are tasked with implementing projects, you know, at a facility campus. We help, you know, the facilities folks uh, and the financial sort of heads there think about how to sort of get get things done. Um, so again, we, we act as a general resource to, to help folks sort of navigate and translate the energy world. Right, sounds, sounds, uh, sounds frankly, it sounds really interesting. Uh, and so I'm pleased to, to have you on the program. Uh, we actually did meet at the Efficiency Main meeting in Freeport, uh, which I guess was back in September. And you were on a panel when we were talking about the grid uh, as, a, as a group. And that's, uh, that's when I approached Rich and he uh, steered me to you. So uh, as I usually do in this program, uh, I pick a couple of, of headlines that I've seen recently that people should be aware of since I focus on energy type headlines and uh, not everybody does, I'm sure, uh, and use those to leverage the uh, the expertise and the interests and the opinions of the person who's on. So I've got a couple of those to do. Uh, one, uh, in October, the Department of Energy announced, uh, let's see, $3.5 billion for a number of grid resiliency projects across a number of states. And if I recall correctly, I think it included something like 40 million for CMP. Uh, and uh, the funding goals for that money, um, everybody will nod at was wild, wildfire resistance, uh, neighborhood microgrids, we need to come back to that one, uh, increased clean energy, uh, being able to handle be handled on the grid. And it says specifically solar panels and electric vehicles. Uh, and, and I love this one, grid in, investments in disadvantaged communities. We need to do more of that stuff. I suppose maybe that's a little beyond where we want to go in this in this show. Um, but uh, the, the news uh, reports also said that this funding was likely to cause CMP to raise their rates again and even more. Uh, and I didn't, they didn't explain why. Do you have any insight on that? 
Yeah, I, I think that's a bit of a, a misleading statement and probably not intentionally. Um, you know, CMP, first and foremost, they deserve a lot of credit. They've done a really nice job here over the last 15 years going out and getting these types of federal awards. You know, if people think back to around uh, the stimulus bill in, when was that, um, 2008 to 2010 range, you know, they got over, it was just about $100 million from the feds to put in, you know, smart meters and the backbone telecommunications network to be able to basically talk to devices out on the grid, connect those all back to their control center in Augusta to have a much better visibility, control, uh, just overall transparency into their grid. You know, so the fact that they've sort of kept their ear on the ground and are getting more federal money, you know, first and foremost, I think that's just good news. So that shouldn't be lost in this. And the, the specific project they proposed, you know, we're such a forested state that just being able to better talk and see stuff out of the distribution level of the grid. And when I say distribution, think about this as from the substation out to your home. These are the roadside poles and lines that cover a lot of the parts of sort of our rural state. You know, being able to better control and respond to outages at that level, that's really going to make a difference for people, especially as we're telling them to electrify more things in their homes. It's a tough proposition to a homeowner to say, electrify your heating, electrify your transportation, buy an EV, buy a heat pump. But you also might have a lot of grid outages. I mean, that, that mm-hmm. you just got to solve the resiliency piece of that first and have better reliability before I think people really become comfortable with that. So kudos to them on the first part. I, I think the second part, what I, I don't know the answer, what I imagine they were meaning is that as we electrify more and more end uses in the state. So again, our overall decarbonization strategy is let's reduce fossil fuel usage in absolute terms by shifting things like transportation, you know, gasoline powered engines, things like combustion heating systems, you know, oil or gas heating systems. Let's move those first to an electric technology and then figure out how to decarbonize that electric mix. And that will be done in parallel. So what I imagine they were thinking is, well, if we're going to move that way, we're going to have to spend a lot more money in the grid to one, make it more reliable and two, uh, just to, to build out the grid to be able to handle more clean energy uh, and uh, load growth. So, you know, it's right in the sense that, you know, CMP over time will need more rate increases. That's just the simple fact that they have to improve their grid for sort of the goal we've tasked them with. But it's not specifically going to be because of this uh, this federal grant, to my knowledge. So that's um, hopefully that can be clarified. All right. So you mentioned uh, the meters, which were somewhat controversial. Uh, and had some billing issues. Uh, and uh, I mean, in my own case, uh, two different times when I've been gone for the weekend or a week, I've gotten noticed that I've had an, I have normal high usage at my house. And uh, CMP has been unable to resolve those questions. Uh, any are the issues with smart meters in our, in our past now? I don't want to be an apologist for CMP on this. I, they did. So again, that the smart meter rollout back in the early 2010s, there's a technology side of this and then sort of an implementation and people side of this. On the technology side of this, you know, they did very well getting the actual meters and this, think of it, this as a, there's a big wireless network now around CMP's territory that helps them collect all this usage data from smart meters, get that back to Augusta so that they can have the the usage for billing purposes and then they can use the telecom system to basically talk back to things on the grid if they want to connect and control something at somebody's house in terms of a meter or something in a substation. It's a two-way street. 
So they did a really nice job getting the technology into place. You know, me personally, I think the pushback they got just on the technology side was kind of ridiculous. I mean, we carry around cell phones in our pockets all the time. I mean, it's that, that part of it was ridiculous. Where they really butchered it was with the billing system implementation. So they needed to upgrade their billing system to use all of this new, I think I, I call it interval usage data. The fact that they're able to now record 15 minute hourly data from your home of how much total electricity you're using, they need a way once they collect that data to actually be able to translate it onto bills. That billing system upgrade happened back in 2016, 2017, and that's where they sort of ran into a wall. Uh, the implementation just didn't go well. A lot of the billing issues that came out of that, uh, that was an implementation issue, but that that doesn't really speak to the technology. It just, unfortunately, the, the implementation of how it got used was botched. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, it doesn't give them an excuse that that happened. But uh, from our client standpoint, you know, the, the billing that has been done and CMP, something that's gone under the radar a little bit, all this net energy billing, um, now that there are all these solar credits flowing to people's bills because of the net energy billing program, we think CMP has actually done a pretty good job there. I mean, they put a lot of resources, time and attention to make sure that hasn't been a nightmare. And that could have been an absolute train wreck. And in my opinion, it's not. So that that flies a little bit more under the radar compared to what happened in 2017, not to be an apologist for what happened back then. But um, yeah, I think we're hopefully past the, the billing fiasco, which was very real at the time. Mm-hmm. So after the, I mentioned that, that I got high usage numbers when I wasn't even home. After the second one, I called them up and they did send somebody out. And, uh, you know, I talked to him for a minute and he walked around the corner to my meter. And in 10 seconds, he came back and says, your meter's fine. Is that, is that all he needed? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know the specific case at your house. So hard to say, um, you know, all they can do outside the house is make sure the meter is running appropriately. Don't know what triggered the abnormal usage. So unfortunately, uh, I'm not going right. to give you much of a well, response right. there. Well, sorry, I've, sorry you I, got that. I've, I've looked for information on that without any luck. So, and you mentioned a moment ago that the fact of potential power outages is something that slows people down about electrification of their homes. Well, if the power goes off, the furnace doesn't work anyway. So uh, people need to keep that in mind, and I'm not sure they always do. And I will just mention, uh, I, I mentioned this. Uh, frequently on this show, just because I think it's important for people to know. Uh, I took my boiler out in 2016 and replaced it with two heat pumps. Uh, and my my total energy bill last year, my total energy bill, not just heating, because I also have a high, hybrid hot water heater and I cook with electric. And so everything in the house is electric. My total bill was $1,200. Uh, and I'm not sure if there's very many people out there with, that don't have solar panels that can say that uh, that their their power uh, total power bill is that low. And we've right, had so, to, just quickly, we've had a similar experience. And we put in, we bought, my wife and I bought an electric vehicle back in 2019. Uh, we put in a whole uh, whole house heat pump system, meaning we still have our boiler in the basement as backup. We have uh, pipeline gas at our home. Uh, we still use gas for sort of hot water heating, but all the space heating now is done with heat pumps. We did that last October, so we're just passing the one-year mark. Uh, we, I, I sort of energy nerded out and went through our bills and looked at actually our interval data to see what we would have paid had we been just still on gas. We saved a bit of money over last year. So the, the, this electrification, uh, it's here and it works. Um, so you're absolutely right on that front. And we've been happy to be able to experience that at our home too. All right. There was a Bangor Daily News article probably a month ago talking about heat pumps and, and the governor's new plan for 200,000 of them. 
Uh, and uh, I don't even want to quote the number, but the, the article talked about the potential electric cost of a heat pump, and it was completely wrong. So if, if I heat my house and everything else with for $1,200, and, and I've come up with this kind of this estimate uh, individually by looking at summer versus winter use, I figure my heat pumps cost me on the order of three to $400 a piece for all, the, for all winter long. Uh, and again, the number in the Bangor Daily was way higher than that. And, and again, I don't even want to quote it because it was so, uh, so outrageous. All right. Well, so we're here to talk about the grid. Uh, let's start with the biggest picture possible. Who owns the, the, the grid in the grand overarching concept of the national grid? Who owns it? That's a great question. I, I you know, working with end users, um, and again, sort of looking at this from from a rate payer perspective, so whether that's residential or non-residential, rate payers own the grid. I mean, the utilities, technically investor-owned utilities are here to serve their shareholders, uh, and they, they have an obligation to do so, but that is completely missing the point. You know, they are here to serve rate payers. Rate payers, the people, you know, you, me, our neighbors, the companies that help sort of support means economy, that's who the grid is for. You know, without those folks, you and me, there's no reason the utilities would exist. Uh, so at the national level, uh, that becomes a bit <laughs> bit of a bigger issue. But for Maine, uh, we can't lose sight that everything we're doing on the utility side is to best serve ratepayers. And if we're not doing that well, then we're not doing our jobs right and need better outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, so CMP and Verson obviously own pol- uh, poles and wires. Um, ISO New England is in the mix. Uh, if we focus on New England or Maine in particular, coming back to my question, who do we consider? I mean, the we physical, can say it's the, it, it's the rate payers, but who technically is, shall we say, responsible for the grid, whatever that means? The physical assets on the grid, the poles, the wires, the substations, those are owned by CMP, by Versant, you know, in the case that you're served by a co uh, municipal utility. So in Kennebunk, that's a, um, a municipal utility owned by the town, uh, Eastern Maine electric co-op. So it depends where you are, but basically the local utility physically or owns the physical infrastructure, I should say. ISO New England the regional grid operator, they don't own any of the physical assets in Maine. Uh, They coordinate with the local transmission owners, i.e. the utilities that I just mentioned, CMP, Versant primarily. Uh, But they're basically the conductor. Think of them as the conductor of the orchestra. They're Mm. working with the utilities, not only in Maine, but across the region to make sure everything is harmonized, both from a power generation standpoint, but also delivery of that power from the power plant to the transmission system, to the distribution system, to your home. They're the conductor that makes sure everybody sings off the same sheet of music. So technically, you're right, Steve, you know, the the utilities own the infrastructure, but for what purpose, you know, to serve the ratepayers. Right. And um, maybe conductor is an unfortunate term when we're talking electricity here, but I understand your point. So ISO New, I mean, ISO New England really is the person who controls our grid in that sense. Isn't that it, it correct? De- it depends. So they, again, you know, if you think about the folks uh, for CMP, let's just focus on CMP. CMP has a control center in Augusta. Uh, through that control center, there are operators of the grid. Think about this. Think of it almost like a big Star Wars screen. There's a big screen in an underground room where operators are watching what's happening on the grid, both at the transmission level. So think about all these big overhead lines you see going across 95, 295, the big wires that move power around the state. 
they're watching those, but also down at the distribution level, when you get down to a substation out to somebody's home, you know, technically the CMP operators are controlling and coordinating all the operations from the substation out. So the distribution system, that's all in CMP's realm. ISO New England, I'm not going to say they don't care about it, but their visibility ends at a certain point. They're really focused on the transmission system. So CMP operators control what happens in sort of the last mile of the grid, serving your home or business. ISO New England is actively coordinating their their, um, control center in Holyoke is actively coordinating with Augusta's control center, Versant's control center in Bangor. They're working together with the local transmission owners, the local utilities to make sure that everything operates appropriately. But at the end of the day, if there's an outage on your street, you know, CMP or Versant is the one mm-hmm. dispatching somebody to come and fix that. So there's, it's a little bit of a gray area, the demarcation, but at the end of the day, the utility is uh, handling operations and interfacing locally um, where you That's probably have had experience with an outage. Sure. So, so maybe the analogy is some, maybe a tree where ISO New England is, is covering the bowl of the tree and, uh, and then the branches are the utilities. And they control the twigs and the leaves and things like that. Something like that makes sense. Nice analogy, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and does that communication go in both directions? Can CMP just gets so if CMP so ISO New England can see if if CMP is falling short on electricity and can and tell Wyman to turn on or something like that. Does it does the communication line go back to ISO New England from CMP in some manner? Yes. No. That's that's a two way street. Um, so short answer is yes. Okay. So uh, you mentioned EVs just a moment ago. You said you had one. Uh, one thing that that I hear, uh, we've we've covered EVs as a specific program at least twice, I think. But you you hear from time to time that people say, "Wait a minute, uh, EVs aren't clean because they're using dirty grid electricity." Uh, and and uh, may I lead you by saying that's not all that true in the state of Maine. What uh, what are the sources of electricity uh, to the grid to our grid here in the state? It's a really good question. And I like to, when I talk about the electricity generation mix, a lot of people drill in and say, what's just happening here in Maine? Uh, Technically, the way we've designed the grid over the last 50 years, the right question to be asking is, well, what's happening in New England? I mean, we've built a transmission system that really doesn't reflect or recognize state borders. You know, Maine's transmission system and generation fleet is sort of built out regionally and coordinated regionally. So when I think about where do our electrons come from, I think it is appropriate to say, you know, what's being generated across the six states. So as a region as a whole, right now, I like to think of it as 60-40. We have about 40% of our electricity coming from natural gas primarily, um, or fossil fuels, if you wanna say. There's a very small slice coming from oil and coal. We're limited now to just a few remaining legacy power plants. If you think about the Wyman station on Casco Bay, that's an oil fire generator. They only ramp that up on a really cold day or in the winter, a really hot day in the summer. There's only one coal power plant left in the region. If you're ever driving up near Concord on a cold day, you may see a big uh, plume coming off of the Bow power station there. Um, and that's those, the only one. That's the only one for coal in all of New England. Believe so. I think Schiller. Okay. There was another one, and 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 um, the other two that were in New Hampshire and Connecticut recently been decommissioned. Mm-hmm. And again, those only run on really cold days in particular. We have a regional issue where we can't get enough pipeline gas up from the Mid Atlantic on really cold days when we have competing demand for gas for both space heating and power plants. 
So when we don't get that gas, the power plants ramp back a bit and we backfill those with the dirtier sources. Mm-hmm. So back to the sort of the 60-40, I think 40% is fossil fuels, mostly gas. The remaining 60% is, I'm going to call them zero carbon. It's a mix of nuclear. We have two big nuclear plants left in the region, one uh, just across the border in New Hampshire. That's the Seabrook Station. You probably see the the big overhead lines if mm-hmm. you're driving down 95 through New mm-hmm. Hampshire. Yep. The other one is the Millstone Plant, Connecticut. We also have a big slice of hydro left in the region, and we import a decent amount of power, hydropower from both upstate New York and Maritime slash Quebec. So adding those all together, you know, roughly, you know, ISO New England, when they look at their mix, they say, we got to balance everything perfectly in real time. What do we have to work with to meet the demand that we have across the grid? Annually, it works out to about 60-40. So back to your original question, you know, is it dirtier to run an EV on this mix, which again, the majority of that mix is clean, zero carbon electricity. Um, The answer is it's much better to run an EV off of that mix compared to gasoline. Even if you're producing that incremental kilowatt hour from a gas power plant, natural gas is getting a bad rap these days. I mean, it's, it's, it's a quite a nice fuel. I mean, it's relatively clean and the power plants that are generating at the big scale. So think about, you know, Calpine and Westbrook, they have a big power plant there. These are really efficient. They're running 50 to 60-ish percent efficiency. Uh, So it's not perfect. They still have some losses, but compared to older, you know, legacy type fossil fuel plants, our gas mix here uh, and our gas fleet in the region is very clean. Um, So even if a kilowatt hour that's going into the EVs coming from those types of plants, it's still much better off than gasoline. And uh, do are any of the gas plants, like the one in Westbrook, uh, using CHP? Do they use any yeah, heat? Yeah, exactly. So they call them combined cycle. You basically think of it as almost like a jet engine on a plane. You're running through gas that's combusting in a complex turbine that's spinning. And then when the steam comes out the other side or the hot air comes out the other side, you're capturing that. And there's a second cycle where you basically have a, a steam electricity generator. So, again, when you if you design these well and use sort of the modern turbine technology, these can be really efficient resources. And the, the, the fact of the matter is we're still going to need these types of resources to balance the grid, to, to fill in times when renewables aren't generating you know, we need to, I know there's an urgency to move off of fossil fuels, including gas, but we just have to keep this tool in our toolkit over the next, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, and it's just the reality of how we need to run the grid. Mm. You, you mentioned uh, power coming in from New Brunswick, um, and uh, that wasn't on my list here, but there's, uh, there's a, a, a power line being built from northern Maine into the rest of Maine to solve some sort of issue where Northern Maine has been mostly served by the Canadian grid. Can you clarify yeah. that a little bit? Yeah, no, the, the county has been, it's essentially, it's not on the New England grid. Uh, they mostly are served uh, by New Brunswick. So um, this Northern Maine wind effort and LS Power's current uh, transmission line proposal from Northern Maine down into CMP's territory in central Maine, you know, the primary purpose of that will be accessing about a thousand a little more than that, a thousand plus megawatts of onshore wind, you know, wind turbines that would be built throughout Arista County, delivering that power uh, down into the New England market. 
Um, I haven't been paying close enough attention on whether there are bi-directional flows um, that would allow sort of more integration in the other way in the county, uh, but that is one possible outcome. Mm-hmm. The primary purpose of those, you know, when those turbines are generating, that power will be moved south um, to be consumed in Maine and elsewhere in the region. Does that mean that there's a, a stealth uh, component of nuclear being fed into the northern Maine grid from Point Lepro in New Brunswick? We're getting a slice of Point Lepro down here in southern Maine, too. So, I mean, Point Lepro is a big old nuclear station uh, up near St. John. So that's both serving you know the county and we get a little bit of slice of that as part of our imports as well. Hmm. Uh, how, does, how does that get here uh, feasibly? We have the big transmission line, MEPCO, you know, that was built a couple decades ago. Um, you'll see this if you're going across. Um, I'm just thinking in Westbrook, where I grew up, we have MEPCO coming right through town there. Um, where does it cross? Almost up near Wiscasset, where the nukes were. Um, maybe that's the uh, the power line that runs along the stud mill road in eastern Maine that fell down during the ice storm. Is that is that part um, of it? Yeah, I'm not sure. But basically, yeah. there's a big transmission line that runs diagonally through Maine down into Massachusetts. Um, so that's how these imports uh, come into the region and get distributed. Mm-hmm. I actually, uh, I taught a sabbatical course at the University of Maine Machias a bunch of years ago uh, and was not aware of Point the Pro until I was teaching energy in the course. And so I wound up taking the class on a field trip to Point the Pro. Nobody I'd ever heard there in Machias, students or or adults were aware that there was a nuclear power plant 30 miles away no, it's, uh, it's, or it's 50 years. or whatever it is. That yeah. was uh, that. Uh, and I imagine a lot of, a lot of people in Maine probably still don't know. So uh, in thinking about, since, since I asked you a moment ago, whether you're involved in the governor's energy office and climate change is something that, uh, that you think about and talk about, uh, is there something specific in Maine won't wait about grid power going net, zero carbon or is it just the big picture for for net zero uh and any again i'm just throwing my hands up with kind of a fuzzy question there uh but uh what's the what's the goal for the grid as part of the a number of bills that governor mills signed back in 2019 you know one of those was significantly increasing the target for clean energy clean electricity in maine over the next two decades so what changed back in 2019 is uh, we call it the Renewable Portfolio Standard. RPS is the sort of common acronym that you might hear about in the news or just in energy circles. So what this law did in 2019 is that it increased the requirement for electricity suppliers serving load in Maine. So whether that's the sort of default supply option a lot of residential folks are on or whether it's for businesses throughout Maine, electricity suppliers need to source renewable energy credits from certain generating technologies to equal a percentage of the total load used by a customer over the course of a year. So let's use a more concrete example. Next year, you know, the electricity suppliers operating throughout Maine, they need to source roughly 55% of their annual sales in Maine from qualifying technologies like wind, solar, hydro, biomass that percentage ramps up each year incrementally. And what this 2019 law did uh, is basically set that target at about 80% by 2040. 
previously it was about 40% prior to Governor Mills being elected. So it was really a big increase. Um, and to support that, uh, there are a range of procurement efforts and sort of associated legislation, things like the Northern Maine Wind Project. Uh, there's a bunch of solar being procured right now as well, big ground-mounted systems outside of the energy building program adding enough new renewable electricity to the grid to sort of make it realistic to ramp up those percentages, those two sort of things go hand in hand. So there's, uh, to be more sort of concise or to summarize this better, there's a suite of legislation that the Mills administration uh, has put in place in partnership with legislature over the last couple of years that one, ramps up the requirements to serve end users with renewable electricity, and then second, make sure that you know new renewable generators get built to meet that increasing supply need. Sure. But at this point, we don't have anything on the books to have the grid go to 100% renewable. We're, we're talking about net zero, not true zero. Is that correct? Uh, not at this point. I know there's there's a current study being done by the Governor's Energy Office to evaluate what it would take uh, to reach that final goal. Uh, but in terms of like firm legal obligations uh, around the RPS or similar programs, short answer is no. Right. So uh, you are listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM on uh, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And my guest today is Evan Perkins, who's Vice President at Competitive Energy Services in Portland. Uh, you mentioned there just a second ago that uh, the 55% RPS includes hydro. That's new hydro, though, not legacy hydro. Is that correct? It's a mix. Uh, you know, it, that allows suppliers to take credit for older uh, hydro stations throughout the state. Uh, in Maine, there really isn't a lot of new hydro being built. You know, there are certain refurbishments being done uh, to certain uh, hydro plants, but this is mostly taking credit for hydro that was originally built by CMP or you know, Bangor Hydro you know, prior to Versen uh, back in the 1900s. Um, we really have tapped out or maximized the hydro resources that we have available here in Maine today. Well, the legacy ones do count. Okay. They do. Yeah. I, thought, I thought they didn't. All right. So uh, one uh, one phrase that I used back when I was talking about that uh, the federal uh, EPA grant uh, for uh, grid resiliency, uh, one term that was in there was uh, microgrids. Uh, clarify for everybody what a microgrid is and give us an example of an appropriate application. An excellent question. Um, <laughs> DOE, the Department of Energy has a nice definition of a microgrid. It's a, it's an interconnected load that's controllable. Um, I'm going to butcher the definition right now as I'm saying it, but basically enables reliable, resilient power uh, to an end user. So, for example, you know we CES works outside of Maine as well. Uh, one of our uh, one of our important customers outside of Maine is the University of Massachusetts system. They have designed their flagship campus in Amherst to have a real microgrid there. What that means is that they have uh, a large, about 15 megawatt uh, combined heat and power system that they use to heat the campus. They also have about eight megawatts of solar uh, on campus, which is a huge amount. It's the largest behind the meter solar system uh, in Massachusetts. And they have a couple different batteries. They have about two megawatts worth of battery storage where they can store some of that power and discharge it to the campus. 
the way I think about a microgrid is how they're set up. They, in the case of an outage from the local utility, their local utility is called Eversource. They're the equivalent of CMP or Versant down in Western Mass. UMass Amherst can seamlessly transfer off the grid and then meet all of its own electricity needs with those generation sources that I mentioned. So even if there's a local outage on Eversource's system, UMass Amherst, nobody notices on campus because basically they just switch over to their own sources and then they run their own little power system until the grid can come back online and that they swap over. So that's one range of a microgrid, basically having a, a district energy system, campus, or even a home being able to seamlessly transfer from taking power from the grid to meeting its own needs in the case that the grid goes down. There's a lot of gray area and sort of sometimes confusion about microgrids, though, uh, in, around reliability and resiliency. You know, whether or not you need a seamless transfer from the grid over to yours is really a question of what you're doing with the power. If you're running a really sensitive research operation, if you have a really sensitive manufacturing process, you know, if you're making semiconductors, for example, you know, just a millisecond outage or really, you know, cycle worth of outage can screw up your process and can cause a lot of damage or lost you know, lost value for you. In a lot of cases, I'm just thinking about ourselves at home. It's okay if our home, for example, goes down off the grid for five minutes and then we bring it back up with a backup power source. You know, we don't currently have one at our home, but if you had a generator or a battery, you know, that technically isn't a microgrid because you don't seamlessly transition, but you still, you know, after a five minute period of being down with no power, you can bring yourself back up and operate like you were. So, you know, there is some distinctions there, and maybe I'm too in the weeds on this, but it's a very expensive proposition to build that sort of seamless transfer system where you don't notice anything when the grid goes down versus, you know, a, a backup power type of situation from your home or business where, you know, for all intents and purposes, you can have a very short outage, then get back up and running and, you know, make sure you're meeting your needs. Mm -hmm. uh, so at the end of the day, you know, both of those are going to be important. Not everybody's going to be able to spend a fortune to do the seamless transition, have all the controls and technology that is required to do that. And presumably, the the UMass example, it's going to cost them more to run their microgrid independently than it would be to be on grid power. Is that, uh, is that accurate or not? Yes. I mean, there's it, it really depends on your case and your own needs. Uh, for some really large end users, it makes sense to generate pretty much all of your own power. You can make the financial case to do that. You know, the, the grid is a pretty beautiful thing, though, if you think about it. I mean, just the economies of scale, both in terms of deliver the cost of delivering power, but also generating it. You know, the reason we built a big shared grid back in the early 1900s is that it's much more cost effective when you can have this huge shared platform, both from a generation and delivery standpoint, and that bears itself out in economics. I mean, we do a lot of work at CES helping end users look at that question if they think about it. In a lot of cases, it's it's hard to beat the economics of the grid mm. just on a you know regular normal day-to-day -day basis, especially as technology on the generation side advances. So mm -hmm. it's case by case, but most of the time, you know, don't don't discount how nice the grid is. I mean, it's an mm -hmm. amazing piece of technology and just it's a technological feat that we have it. It's it's something that shouldn't be undervalued. Right, for sure. Um, but for for people who do run into the word, uh, I mean, if you're if you're uh, you could argue. Uh, depending on how things have set up relative to transfer of power and things like that. If you've got solar power with batteries, uh, you probably, your home is probably a nanogrid, not a microgrid. Uh, 
Um, but uh, in effect, it's it's that's how it works. Uh, my hope is people people's takeaway is that you don't need to technically have a microgrid as long as you have you know a backup path. One, the ideal is we should be always working cost effectively towards a better, reliable, more resilient grid. I mean, the best right. solution is don't let the grid go down at all. And we can still do a lot around that. I mean, just the tree trimming we could do, very basic, unsexy type of thing. With how forested the state is, we could do a lot better just by doing better tree trimming. But at the end of the day, if we're going to electrify, you don't need a microgrid to, to be able to live. You can have some backup power source. There's going to be different technologies and ways to do that, whether that's a generator or a battery. So as long as you feel comfortable at your home, in the case of an outage, I mean, that that's the important thing. What we call that, you know, that everybody mm -hmm. can pick their own term. Right. So the term uh, beneficial electrification hasn't come up in our conversation yet. Um, but can I assume that given the current realities of uh, of pricing and grid power and things like that, that uh, obviously beneficial electrification, I'm sure, is on is in your very much in your vocabulary. But you might not suggest that for certain uh, entities relative to generating for doing a microgrid or, or setting up power for their individual uh, scenario. Is that uh, is that am I, did I fumble my way through that question? No, no, it's it's a great question. It's I, I'd characterize it as it, those terms aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, you know, when I think of when someone says microgrid, I'm thinking about how does somebody meet their power reliably, especially in an outage situation. You know, when the grid goes down, how are you meeting your needs? Well, you know, when we go to microgrid, I, I I go there. I think about sort of backup power as the primary application. Beneficial electrification overall is the process of moving our transportation fleet and our heating systems from fossil fuels to electricity. So, you know, to do that, um, you know, that's a, there is a question of upfront cost and then ongoing cost. Um, you know, across our client base, and like I said before, we, we've been going through this process at home. You know, this is a transition that's happening. I mean, it is economic to do this in a lot of cases, to move towards electric sources. It's a lot easier if you have a major capital upgrade coming up. And what I mean by that is if you have a heating system coming to the end of its life, if you have an electric, uh, if you have a vehicle coming to the end of its life, it's a lot easier to purchase one of these electrified technologies and make the business case to do it if you already had to spend a decent amount of money in the alternative, the status quo technology. But I think, you know, the um, yeah, I don't know if that's answering the question, but. Uh, yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, it doesn't make sense for everybody to go 100% electric, period. No questions asked at this point uh, and understood. And, and I might add, since you mentioned upfront costs, uh, the total cost of my house to go fully electric was on the order of $10,000, um, I'll admit. But I did that over six years and I got significant rebates from Efficiency Maine. So it's not impossible for somebody to, uh, financially, for somebody to go fully electric uh, in I, the average Maine home. It's a really important point. And a couple things have changed recently. You know, The Inflation Reduction Act that got signed by President Biden in the law last August has a huge amount of incentive money to help people you know, move their home towards uh, electric sources. There's a, there's a tax credit for electric vehicles, assuming you have the right make and model. From a heat pump standpoint, you can get thousands of dollars back through that. In addition to that, like you said, Efficiency Maine is doing a really great job on both of those fronts, adding additional sort of state level rebates to help sort of soften that upfront cost. 
also, you know, Maine has some of the most innovative rate design going on right now. Both uh, CMP and Versen are looking at how, again, CMP and Versen, they only control the poles and wires, not the actual cost of generating the power. There's active proceedings right now at the Public Utilities Commission looking at how they charge you for distribution and transmission services. And the questions being asked, are we doing this in a way that supports electric vehicle adoption and heat pumps? If we get that rate design side of this right, there's ways to really help folks pay back the rest of that upfront cost premium. Mm-hmm. And like, can I give two examples of just how that would work in practice? Mm-hmm. Okay. So think about heat pumps. So heat pumps, if you put these in at home, your primary use of these will be to provide heat through the winter, right? I mean, you're going to be displacing a boiler that is running from, you know, depending on where you live in the state, typically November to April. If you think about the cost of the grid, if you think about Versant and CMP's system, think about those grids on sort of, I like the analogy of like, it's a mall parking lot on Black Friday. CMP and Versant have to build their transmission and distribution systems with enough capacity to basically meet that demand they have on a peak day. Think a really hot summer afternoon when the grid's really constrained. It's like a a mall. That that parking lot model is a great, a great, a great analogy. It's like, you know, the mall, the mall is trying to build its parking lot to have people be able to park on Black Friday. The rest of the year, what does it use? 20, 30 percent. Right. So CES, one of the cases we've made over the last couple of years and and CMP, uh, credit to them, they agreed with this. And there's a pilot rate around this right now. Basically, you know, we shouldn't be charging people as much for that. Just the delivery side. Again, we're not talking about the cost of generating the electron. The cost of delivering it, there's really no marginal cost to do that in the winter because we're designing these systems right now for the summer. That will change over time, and I'm going to punt on that. But basically, we can justify it from an economic standpoint to basically charge less on those delivery bills in the winter months. And if you do that, it really makes a difference. It, you know, it can mm. be a thousand bucks a year. Um, so that's one side of it. Electric vehicles. A little bit different. If you think about electric vehicles, you know, you come home from work if you have an electric vehicle, and if you didn't have an incentive not to, you're probably just plugging it in to start charging right away. If you do that, and everybody else does that in your neighborhood, you're going to really increase the demand on the grid, and you're going to cause a local utility to have to upgrade the grid. So, well, what happens if you incentivize people to not plug in their cars right away, or to plug in their cars, but to have that load controlled to start later charging, Mm. or start charging later? You know, these are types of things we can look at with how we charge for electricity delivery today. And if we look at the economics, the price signals that we're sending to people, there are ways to, again, sort of lower cost if you're doing the right type of behavior, uh, which supports, you know, heat pump adoption and electric vehicle adoption. And um, the PUC has been spending a lot of time on this. So they deserve this president. Is time-based pricing? Uh, in under the consideration because I, I had that in New Hampshire and I've not heard anything about it in Maine. Yes, sort of the expanding this time of use rate. When I say time of use, you know, the, the delivery, the poles and wires cost to you varies by the time you use it. You know, there are already some pilot rates out there and there's actually an ongoing effort right now to keep refining those at both of the utilities. So mm-hmm. this um, needs to do a better, everybody, the stakeholders involved in this process need to be getting the message out on these more and more. Uh, but this is something that's getting a lot of attention at the PUC and by the various stakeholders. So hopefully, as these continue to get refined, that messaging is loud and clear to ratepayers that it's clear, it's not confusing, sort of which option is 
right for them and can really help them in this home electrification transition. All right. I did look at the uh, the heat pump pricing um, and put it, you know, did did the math on it. And I forget the details here, but you were going to get a discount in the wintertime, but you're going to pay more in the summertime. And because my heat pumps are only costing me three or four hundred dollars a year, it wasn't economic, interestingly enough. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll look forward to see how that may evolve. But at this point, I've not done it, uh, despite despite my heat pumps. So uh, I have we're down to uh, under 10 minutes. But let me just remind people that we are listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. And my guest is Evan Perkins, Vice President of Competitive Energy Services. And we are having a really fascinating conversation, quite frankly, about uh, the big picture of the grid and some of the details that go into the grid. Let me uh, let me give you uh, so actually uh, I wrote a proposal for when I was with a, a previous employer uh, to uh, the Maine Community Foundation uh, about a vision and uh, planning for a future grid uh, that I'm going to describe here in a moment, uh, and they came back with, huh. Uh, you know, and uh, and so it obviously didn't get funded, but I continue to be, be uh, uh, troubled by the fact that I don't hear enough about this sort of thing. And so uh, we've all heard that there's inconsistent uh, renewable energy sources. Wind and solar are the big ones. Um, we don't hear that and biomass is considered to be renewable by act of Congress, uh, and that can happen at any time and can be generating at any time. Hydro can be generating at any time. Uh, it seems to me that we need to be using the inconsistent renewables when uh, when we can. And then the thing to, to plug back in afterwards is hydro and biomass, tidal power, quite frankly. Uh, we've got ocean renewable there in Portland, but I don't know where they are with theirs, but we can clearly absolutely predict the tidal power uh, scenario, just as we can sun and wind. Uh, but we don't seem to do that as well as we could. Um, and then maybe we use some backup batteries in there. They're not a generating source, but they can uh, even things out. Um, and, and one thing that a number of places are doing, including a huge one in Massachusetts, is using pumped hydro, um, in which pumped hydro is just a battery. Um, and it seems to me that with that mix of things, if we fine-tuned it, we could, in fact, whoever we is, be it Maine or be it New England, get off of fossil fuels react to that thought that's in that scenario i would agree from a technology standpoint we're quickly evolving to the point where we can feasibly get to 80 90 plus percent you know zero carbon electricity that last 10 percent is really really hard that gap is really really hard to close especially when we think about what usage of the grid will look like once we electrify everything. What I mean by that is let's just hypothetically say we're, you know, 20, 20 years in the future right now, or 10, pick your date, 2030, 2040. If everybody in Maine has heat pumps, if everybody in Maine has electric vehicles, our electric demand in Maine is going to be significantly higher in the winter months compared to where it is today. We peak in the summer today. So as soon as you try to get to this absolute goal of 100 percent, you you sort of crack the door open on the seasonal storage question. You know, mm -hmm. when you get into seasonal imbalances where you need a lot more power generated in the winter, it just becomes a lot trickier to solve. So, I, I you know, we're seeing this debate 
uh, play out across New England. You know, there's some really interesting back and forth going on right now in Boston and Cambridge around municipal ordinances that are really banging the drum on saying we've got to get to 100 percent as soon as possible. I am a little bit we, we do need to get there, but I'm a little bit hesitant to jump there because in some cases it turns people off. Uh, you know, it either it, 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 um, it raises people's concerns about feasibility. Uh, it riles people up that say we absolutely have to get there. Uh, if we can get to 90 plus percent zero carbon electricity, that would be a phenomenal achievement. And we can we can do it using the technologies we have today, like you said. If we think about solar, if we think about wind, one of the really nice aspects of wind and solar here is that wind for Maine, whether it's onshore or offshore, it generates more at night and it generates better in the winter. So this actually isn't the case everywhere. Out in California and the West Coast, in a lot of cases, the the wind peaks in the summer months. So they have this huge seasonal issue that thankfully we don't need to deal with as much. I'm way oversimplifying this, but that's sort of a benefit I see. So if we can be smart about how we build out wind and solar, and we need to be doing this at scale, uh, some distributed generation on the distribution system can provide benefits, but long-term, we're going to need so much new generation as we build our electric load because we're electrifying stuff. We need to be building the stuff at really large scale. Otherwise, the just the cost of doing this is going to be really challenging for folks. We can't lose that sort of affordability uh, view and the emphasis there, not only for residences, but for businesses. It doesn't do us any good if we drive businesses out of the state because we're asking them to reduce emissions. I mean, we want them to stay here and to be part of that transition. So long rambling way of saying we can keep building out solar and wind smartly. We can also use hydro, biomass. We need to retain the nuclear plants that are in the region. We can build out this toolkit and use things like batteries and other emerging storage technologies to balance those times. And maybe we use a bit of gas there too. I mean, I, I don't think people people need to be realistic. We're going to be doing that here over the next 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. And if we do all those together, you know, we have a really nice toolkit here in New England that we can use to really, you know, pretty much get all the way there. And then how we close that last gap, there is still a bit of a technology gap that hopefully we keep working on here over the next 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. So I, I heard a really, I was, I was moderating a panel with uh, at UMass Amherst, the big Ten and Friends conference over the summer, which has all these big campus operators. They run these big sort of city utilities at the big universities in the Midwest and other parts of the country. And one of the grid operators from the Mid-Atlantic was there from PJM. I really liked the way he put it. He said, we need to think about all these new resources as tools in the toolkit. It's not just one that's going to solve it. We need a full toolkit to help make the transition, especially as load grows. So I think about it that way. You know, the technology is going to be there. We just need to be smart about sort of keeping a diverse set of tools to be able to solve the need. And I think we're going to get there. Hmm. Well, we're down to, to two minutes, unfortunately. And uh, and I'm only uh, a third of the way through the list of things that I shared with you that we might talk about. And that always seems to happen in these programs. Um, and I guess I guess my question, and, and you may have to just say we're out of time to talk about it, but uh, I'm interested in, in your perspective of how much additional capacity we need. Uh, and I mean, Rich Silkman has said the grid can handle 50 percent more. Uh, and I've seen things in, in my research that says that if we do efficiencies such as uh, adding more solar and doing the project that happened, uh, grid solar in Booth Bay, maybe 50 percent is enough. 
But I see other people who say, no, we need three or four hundred percent. Here's your uh, here's your your uh, your 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 TV program answer where you get you get 30 seconds to answer the question. It's a time it's a time scale issue. So again, what we're talking about here is think of it as like the size of the pipe. You know, this is the transmission and distribution system, the poles and wires to move the power from power plants to your home or business. Long term, if we electrify everything, you need a grid that is probably 3x plus larger than what we have today on a capacity basis. There is a really important point, though, that over the next 10 to 15 years, if we can be really smart about managing loads during peak conditions, we can defer uh, when that first major wave of investment needs to be invested and cause rates to increase. If we can be smart as a state and at a policy level to allow this initial load growth to happen before we have to write a huge check for that first big upgrade, there's a lot of benefit there around sort of rate uh, rates and affordability. So it, not to say it's uh, one or the other, it's both. I mean, we need to be smart about this initial sort of deferral period, but long-term we're going to have to spend a lot of money in the grid if we want to electrify everything. That's the, that's the yeah, truth. That doesn't surprise me in the least. And uh, we, uh, I, I hope I either run into you again for further conversations or, or I have you back on the program. Uh, but you've been listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM in Blue Hill and Bangor with guest Evan Perkins, who is the Vice President for Competitive Energy Services in Portland. And I hope you have a sense for what uh, CES is all about. Um, Power for the People airs the fourth Wednesday in the public affairs time slot at 4 p.m. And join us next time to learn more about energy topics, prices, policies, technology, uh, and other energy-saving uh, solutions for your life and for your home. Thanks so much, Evan. Uh, Thanks for being on the program and thanks for all this great information.